the National Archives podcast series, The Land Tax, 1692-1963, presented by Mark Pearsall. So I'm not going to go into too much um, interpretation of the tax and the various changes in the taxation regulations. Just give you an overview of the tax, uh, the land tax, um, and the main changes, and basically the records that survive of the Land Tax Redemption Office, which was set up in 1798 and ran until 1963, that managed redemption of the tax and the records that survive of the Land Tax Redemption Office, which survive in an Inland Revenue series of records or several series of Inland Revenue records in the National Archives. And I'll just say a little bit in passing about land tax assessments that are held in county record offices. So, to start off, origins of the land tax. Well, it began in 1692, 1691-92, when Parliament passed an act for taxing various things, including land, not just land, but also personal estate. So in some ways, the the act actually covered a basic income tax on personal estate. Also on public offices, excise officers, customs officers and other officials, public officials, uh, were taxed, uh, as well as land. So there were a whole number of what are called personal assessed taxes as well as a land tax, which actually start from 1692. And valuations were made by collectors appointed locally um, to inquire into people's personal estate. And it was a bit intrusive, a bit like later on the income tax was, and people didn't like this. Um, So the system actually changed... In 1698, they decided to go over to a quota system. So the Act of 1698 allowed for county quotas to be fixed for each county, and the amounts were then apportioned within the county to the hundreds and the divisions. And these quotas were fixed, and from 1698 until 1963, they never varied. They, well, they could slightly be adjusted within parishes at local level, but the actual parish quota and the county quotas didn't change from 1698 to 1963. So what was quite a heavy tax in the um, 17th century, by the 20th century was almost an anomaly, but to farmers and landowners could be a bit niggly um, when you've got tax collectors asking for small amounts of money on your land. So the quota system came in in 1698. Um, Fixed amounts were allocated to each county and then that was divided up between the hundreds and the divisions and then each parish or township or tithing were allocated their own fixed quota. And over the years, the quota remained the same, but individual collections within the parish or township could be adjusted for different individuals. So some years you might pay a bit more, other years you might pay a bit less. And although the amounts were based on acreages, they were only rough and approximate. And you can't guarantee that where an acreage is given in a land tax assessment that it's particularly accurate. 
The other thing was that it also depended really not so much on the size or acreage of the land, but the value of that land. So an acre of poor arable land wouldn't be taxed or wouldn't be assessed as highly as a good acre of arable land. So a farmer might pay more on one group of five acres than he would on another group of five acres. So it was all adjusted at local level by the local collectors. So you can't always rely on the amounts and the assessments and the acreages in the land tax assessments as to be particularly accurate. So the basic system was put in place in 1698. From 1702, there was annual legislation, annual land tax acts. But again, some element of the old assessment on personal estate and public offices continued. So you will find in some land tax assessments individuals are not being assessed on land, even though it's called the land tax, they're actually also being assessed on their shops and their stock in trade, particularly in cities and towns and boroughs where they don't own land. They might have a house, a tenement in a street, but they don't actually have any land attached to it. But if they've got a business and they've got stock in trade and goods, then they may be taxed at a, in, under the land tax for, that, for those goods and stock in trade. Um, or they might be taxed for their employment. And I've found examples, you often get excise officers have to pay the land tax or a proportion in the land tax assessment, but other public officers as well sometimes, other officials, customs officials. Sometimes I've actually also seen ship owners paying land tax in ports. Um, so you do get a mixture of odd entries in the land tax assessments. They'll sometimes appear after the, the normal list of landed proprietors and the occupiers of the land, you'll get stock and then you'll probably get a list of shopkeepers under stock. If you're unfamiliar with it, this occurred with a, a colleague once, they actually thought stock was the name of the parish or the township rather than the goods. And it's easy enough because sometimes the parishes are divided into townships and you'll get two or three townships, small townships on a page. And if you suddenly come across stock and nothing else, you think it's a place and it's not. It means it's goods, usually. The other thing you sometimes find is it just says personals and that's money on offices on their occupation and they're paying um, on their occupation. So it doesn't just include a tax on land and property. But from 1702, there's annual legislation up until 1698. Um, but a couple of things happened in the 18th century which make these records of particular interest to sort of local and family historians. Um, there was an act in 1745 which actually specified that freeholders to prove that they had the vote and were entitled to vote at parliamentary elections for Knights of the Shire, for the county constituencies, to prove that they qualified for the vote, they had to be assessed for the land tax. Therefore, they had to uh, appear in the land tax assessments, the local land tax assessments. Like many 18th century acts, this wasn't always followed to the letter, and it doesn't mean that you get good... Um, land tax assessments in county record offices from 1745. You might for some for certain counties, 
But after 1780, when there was a further act that reinforced this provision, it was required that the clerks of the peace kept copies of the assessments for those paying land tax so that they could make up the poll books at elections for Knights of the Shire. You might remember from your history that Knights of the Shire were elected by 40 shilling freeholders. So if you owned land worth 40 shillings, you would pay the land tax, you should appear in the land tax assessments. Therefore, you would be checked off and it would be known that you would be entitled to vote at parliamentary elections for Knights of the Shire. Slightly different for cities and boroughs, where the land tax wasn't so important because it in a city or a borough, you're mainly dealing with houses and tenements um, and not land. So the returns are slightly different and land tax assessments for cities and boroughs tend not to survive. So it's really for counties, for rural parishes outside cities and boroughs um, where you find surviving land tax assessments in county record offices. You might find some before 1780 but the majority run from 1780 to 1832. 1832, the Great Reform Act was passed, the Representation of the People Act of 1832. From that date, you get proper registers of electors made up by, by town clerks and county clerks. So there are proper registers of electors from 1832. You can still get land tax assessments, but they're not complete because from 1798, um, you could redeem your land tax payments and be exonerated so that you didn't have to pay any further land tax. You paid a lump sum. You still appeared after 1798, even though you had exonerated your payment in these returns because they were still required by the clerk of the peace. But after 1832 and the Reform Act, the people that were exonerated from the land tax don't appear in the land tax assessments. So where they survive after 1832 in county record offices, they're not as complete. But most counties have a good run from 1780 to 1832 of land tax assessments. Not everywhere, a few places they just haven't survived, but most counties will. And they will have incomplete returns after 1832 into the later 19th century. Few places do have them before 1780. They, they start to accumulate after 1745. One of the earliest counties that has surviving early land tax returns is Rutland, that has them for 1712. But that is a very uh, early return, and that's, that's quite exceptional. So in 1798, the tax was made a perpetual charge, subject to redemption or purchase. So owners of uh, a property could pay a lump sum, uh, 15 years worth of land tax in one lump sum, and then they were exonerated from paying the further tax. Owners of properties valued land under less than 20 shillings ceased to be chargeable, and they also disappear from the land tax um, returns, both the 1798 returns and later ones that you'll find in county record offices. And a land tax redemption office was set up under a register of land tax. Um, they were responsible for the collection of the tax, for redemption and exoneration of taxpayers. And that system continued basically until 1949 when the Finance Act, the budget of that year, introduced compulsory redemption 
such as when property changed hands, or even when an owner died and someone inherited the estate, then the land tax, the amount that was outstanding, should be redeemed. And from the 1st of April 1950, there's a new series of redemption certificates issued by the land tax uh, redemption office whenever a property changed hands, when somebody inherited a property or when it was sold and the new purchaser bought it. That continued until 1963 when the budget of that year finally abol abolished all the remaining unredeemed land tax from the 25th of March that year in 1963. By which, of course, because the quotas had not changed since 1698, the amount of land tax that people paid, landowners paid each year, was only a, a nominal amount. Um, but unless they redeemed it, um, you still continued to pay that small amount up until 1963. Now what I'm going to show you next are uh, the surviving record series for the Land Tax Redemption Office from 1798 to 1963 and then you can have a look at a few examples of those surviving records in the National Archives. After that I'll say a little bit more about the returns held in county record offices and sources for finding those records and finding what's available held locally. Now, there's a number of Inland Revenue series, IR8, those are registers of parish land tax liability. Um, but they only run between 1863 and 1914, and there are gaps, three gaps between 1868 and 72, 1879 and 1882, and 1889 and 1892. They're not of much use to family historians. They might be of interest to people interested in taxation and social historians. All these registers record are the amounts of outstanding liability. They don't include lists of landowners or the occupiers of the land. So they're not of any genealogical value and they're not much used to local historians. But if you're interested in taxation, then they may be worth looking at. But they just basically record the outstanding liability year by year as people redeem and are exonerated from the tax, the amount of liability for that parish will, will, will decrease. And it just records that over the years up to 1914. So it's not uh, a, a much used series. The other series are in a block, IR20 to IR25. You get the enrolment books of deeds and assignments between 1799 and 1885. If you find in the quotas and assessments that um, a property has um, been redeemed or that the land tax has been redeemed or exonerated and you find a contract number, uh, it can be found in a number of these series. Um, IR20 particularly contains details of um, landowners that were either ecclesiastical or charitable trusts. So diocesan bishops, deans and chapters of cathedrals, parish clergy, other ecclesiastical bodies and charities, parochial charities, um, charitable trusts, could sell property in particular parishes, in particular counties where they owned property, to redeem or exonerate um, their land tax liability in that parish or township. And you will get a full copy of the deed 
and details of the individual to whom they sold that property and sometimes you will get a plan as well of the property. Not in every case, not in many cases, but quite often there will be a deed, um, particularly if there is a lot of property involved, maybe in a town or on the outskirts of a town where you need a clear plan. So that's one particular series of deeds and assignments. You've also got another series of exonerations of land tax in IR 21 and those record proceedings extracts from the Board of Land Tax Commissioners with brief details of the sales and conveyances of property again being sold to pay the liability on the land tax. Um, and these go up to 1950 and then with the budget changes of 1949 you just get final certificates of exoneration after 1950, which just list the name of the parish and a very brief description of the property, just house and garden or shop or whatever, or the name of a house, the parish it's in or the street it's in. No full description, no plans after 1950. Um, but before then, you get more details. You've also got the main index to the um, redemptions, the parish books of redemptions in IR 22, running from 1799 to 1953. The details in that volume show you the name of the redemptioner, that's the landowner or proprietor, that's actually paying the lump sum um, to pay off his land tax. The name of the occupier of the land on which the, the, the redemption is being paid, the amount of the tax being redeemed, and then the number of the contracts in the assessment book, which is written in red. And there are indexes to these in IR 22, in IR 22, 206 and 207. They only give you the details where the landowner is actually having, is, is going to pay a lump sum and redeem the tax. Um, those that didn't and continued to pay the tax annually just appear in the quotas and assessments. They don't appear in the parish books of redemptions. But if you're interested as a local historian in who was paying the land tax and when it was redeemed, then it's worth consulting these records. So you look up the county and the parish you want in the indexes in 206, 207, and then order up the relevant volume from IR 22. And I'll show you an example of that later. The main series of records, which you may be familiar with, are the actual quotas and assessments in IR 23. And this is the return that was made under the 1798 Act to the land tax commissioners and this was the act that allowed people to, to, to redeem the tax by paying the lump sum. So there had to be a central collection of assessments for each county. So the National Archives has this one year, this one snapshot from 1798 Although, having said that, there are also, you can find assessments, although the catalogue says 1798 um, for the date range, you can find assessments for individual parishes for 1799 and occasionally even 1800. One county we don't have, we've got all the counties of England and Wales, the Scottish counties records are in the National Archives of Scotland because they paid land tax in Scotland as well, but we don't have those returns. The one county we don't have for some reason is Flintshire and those returns either don't survive or they were never sent to London in 1798-99, but Flintshire is missing. Otherwise we've got an assessment for 1798 or 99 
for, for every county in England and Wales. One of the counties where we've got an assessment for every parish for both 1798 and 1799 is Cornwall. Usually what we've got are all the assessments for 1798 and then an odd return for some individual parishes in that county for 1799 and maybe 1800. But for Cornwall, we've got two years' worth of assessments for some reason. The clerks, the, the commission has just sent two, two sets of assessments up. So you've got this snapshot of the land tax paid in England and Wales in 1798 in the Inland Revenue Series IR23, and that's the one that most family historians are usually familiar with. Um, and you can use those records to find the principal landowners, proprietors in each parish, and the main tenants. You won't find everybody, you won't find subtenants, um, but it will give you some idea of the main landholders in each parish or township. And you can access those records without the need to go to the parish books of redemptions. There are indexes to the parishes and we're in the process of a catalogue improvement project to actually make detailed entries for the IR23 um, pieces on the catalogue. So you'll be able to search by parish or township um, to find the particular piece that you want. At the moment there's a finding aid in the Map and Large document room that you can use, or you can you order up all the volumes, two volumes, three volumes, smaller counties, there's just one volume, and there's an index in the front of each volume to the parishes and townships. You've also got the registers of redemption certificates. So in the quotas and assessments in IR23, in the first column, if you find a number in red and on the right-hand side a contract number, you can look up the contract in IR24. And as well as just the date of the contract, it actually, and, and they call them redemption certificates. Later on, they are just certificates. But for most of this period, and even up to 1950, you get a detailed contract, and sometimes a whole deed, particularly for the early period, which will go into more detail about the property, which isn't really described in the IR23 quotas and assessments or in local land tax quotas and assessments, it will actually say what the property is. It won't go into great detail, but it will say whether it's just land or land and a house or a shop or a farm or a mill. And it'll, it'll describe what it is. It'll go into detail of who the occupiers are. It won't list subtenants, but then the quotas don't. But sometimes in the quotas and assessments, it will just say several properties and say occupier John Smith and others. In the contracts, it usually will say who each of those others are. So if you find a red number in the quotas and assessments for a contract, it's then worth looking it up in IR24. You should get more detail. There's also an IR25 series of miscellanea, which I must admit that I haven't really looked at um, there's all sorts of odds and ends relating to the administration of the, uh, the land tax and the running of the land tax redemption office. But if you found that there was a dispute over land tax or somebody was in arrears and in difficulty paying the land tax or there was some problem over them paying the lump sum over the redemption and uh, then being exonerated from paying the tax, then you might find that it was raised at the board minutes and it might be worth consulting the surviving minutes in IR25. And there are also legal opinions from lawyers as well. 
and those run until the, the legal opinions up to 1856. But there are also precedent books as well and other aids that the, the clerks working in the land tax redemption office used. There's also a couple of old guides to the land tax that are in there, um, which if you want to know more about the land tax and its operation would be worth ordering up. So there is material that is of use to social um, historians and local historians in IR, IR25, but I must admit that I haven't actually had cause to use those. Now I'm going to show you a few examples of those documents that I've mentioned. So this is one of the IR23s, the Parish Quota and Assessment, for the parish of Wraithby and Maltby in Lincolnshire, IR 2347, folio 872. If the landowner did contract to exonerate themselves from the land tax, there'll be a contract number in red in that column, date of the contracts in that column, and then you can look it up in IR 24. But these are the assessments for 1798, or you'll notice though that this Lincolnshire one is 1799. You get the names of the proprietors, all the landowners, although confusingly enough you can also sometimes find not just freeholders, and I said that these were used for, by the clerks of the peace to see who qualified for voting for Knights of the Shires, but sometimes in local land tax assessments and in these assessments these may not always be freeholders and they don't necessarily live in the parish. Usually landowners, they might be peers of the realm that have vast estates across the whole of England or substantial landed gentry that have several estates across counties and at least several estates in different parishes and townships. So you can't guarantee that they lived in this parish and you can't even guarantee that the occupiers actually lived in this parish. You might find that the occupier occupies and rents several bits of land in different parishes and townships. So you can't guarantee that they actually live in this parish. If they're only small holders or small leases, then there may be, but you've got to consult other records, other parish records and parish registers to determine that. Um, but sometimes the proprietors can be substantial leaseholders, sometimes even copyholders, but it's probable then that they have land elsewhere in the county where they do have a freehold. So you get the names of the proprietors, which are usually the landowners, then the principal tenants, the leasees of that land. But it won't include people that sublet. So sort of humble people living in hovels and cottages who are just sub-tenants of these farmers and, and other leasees of the main landowners are not listed. So this doesn't include all the householders in a particular parish. And as I, can, as I said, these, these holders of land could also have other holdings in other parishes. You get the sum that they were assessed for as well, which is a notional fee. From 1692 up to 1798, the amount um, that they were rated could, could, um, could vary from a shilling in the pound to four shillings in the pound. From 1798 it was set at four shillings in the pound and it didn't change. And the other thing that didn't change was the quota for the county and the quota for the parish. So some people some years might pay a little bit more or a little bit less. So in a good year they might pay a little bit more 
in a bad year they might pay a little bit less and they'd work it out with the local collectors of the land tax. And sometimes the parish would collect more than it needed to and it would keep the sur surplus for the following year or for a hard lean time when they needed that surplus. They might even put it to some other use so long as they could get the money back when they needed to pay the next year's land tax. So there was a bit of variation and adjustment at a local level as to who paid what. So these, these amounts would, could vary and as I say the acreages are not particularly accurate on the local assessments as well and people could be charged more or less depending on the quality of that land. So there are always going to be local variations. But that's a typical example of the entry that you'd find in IR23 for a rural parish. I just wanted to show you that this landowner is Charles Chaplin Esquire. There's only two landowners in this little parish and one is the Reverend Mr Chaplin, I can't remember his first name, and also one of the tenants is George Chaplin. Now he's presumably the squire, the principal landowner, he's probably the lord of the manor. They owned lots of land, the Chaplin family, in Lincolnshire and also in Rutland. This is probably a brother or it could be an uncle of uh, his father, a younger son who didn't inherit the estate. Or it could, yes, it could be a brother, could be a son, could be an uncle. And the clergyman at the bottom, who's down as a landowner for his glebe land, is presumably a relative as well. And this is the parish book of redemptions in IR22 for Wraithby come Maltby. Because he actually did pay the lump sum, he is listed with his tenants. The other chaplain, the reverend, who had the um, glebe land, he didn't, um, he didn't put in, he didn't compound to, re, to have his land tax re, um, exonerated. So he doesn't appear in here. And the other tenants, if there were several landowners, if they weren't going to have their land tax redeemed, they won't appear here either. These, they've got the quota. Unfortunately, I've cut it off here, but quota here is the actual parish quota that won't change during the entire period of the land tax. At the bottom, you'll see this has been added much later in 1937-38. No unexonerated land tax remains in this parish. But if there had been, there would be later entries, so it's useful for social historians and local historians to consult these books of redemptions just to see what happened later on in the 19th century or early 20th century. This is another entry in that same book of redemptions. It's for another parish in Lincolnshire called Taithwell. But I'm just brought this up to show you that Charles Chaplin is also the main landowner in this parish as well and he's also compounding for his land tax in this parish and it's got the same contract number. So he's redeeming the land in this parish and I haven't searched through all his holdings in the quotas and assessments in IR23 but there could be several other parishes or townships where he's doing the same thing. So this contract, which I haven't read through, might contain details of other parishes and townships as well. And this is that actual contract, 43975, for his land, and it lists again the tenants. And as I said, sometimes where it doesn't go into great detail and list all tenants, it sometimes says, and others, in these, in these contracts it usually does, and it will specify what types of buildings and land um, he's actually getting the land tax redeemed on. 
And that's just another bit of that same contract, just a bit more. This goes on for several pages in this register in IR24 because he's actually redeeming a land tax on a lot of, a lot of um, parishes and townships. Um, this is just an e another example from the parish books of redemptions for another parish in Shropshire, Sutton Maddock. Again, there is an assessment in IR23 which lists all the landowners and all the principal tenants. Here in the book of redemptions, it's only those that are actually going to redeem the land tax. So there's only two people, one in March 1799, one in September 1799. And there will be contracts in IR24 for these two men. You'll see here that there are later ones. There's one in 1901 and there are these in 1937, 38, 39, 40 where final payments of land tax are being made in the 20th century. So these books will give you a record of all the land tax liability and its reduction up to 1950. And again, that's another example. That's the contract from the first man on the one for Sutton Maddock in Salop. And this is his contract and the details of the land that he is redeeming his land tax on. These are just another couple of examples of IR23 entries. I just thought I would show you slight differences with cities and boroughs. Um, normally in a city or borough, it will be broken down by wards if the city or borough is divided into wards and then by high street. For large towns with say somewhere like Birmingham that wasn't incorporated until 1838 it's broken down by streets and you don't get wards because it, it's not a borough, um, it's just a large town, a market town. But it, the larger towns and certainly in London it's broken down by parish, ward and street and it goes into detail. So that's Shrewsbury in 1798. This is not an IR23. Again, this is actually taken from the assessments. But the reason I've included it, this is for the Free Grammar School of Birmingham, what became King Edward VI Grammar School in Birmingham. And it actually exonerated its land tax. So it appears in the parish books and there are deeds in IR24 for all the properties that it owned in the city of Birmingham. And this lists page after page of all the occupiers of all the land. It doesn't go into detail in IR22 but it does in IR24 where you've got the contract and the, the deed of exoneration. So you get all the properties listed, you get the freeholder which is the school and you also get details of the leasee and the tenant so it goes into more detail where the property has been sublet and there are page and page of detailed descriptions and as well as this sort of schedule of the properties and all the tenants and occupiers it also goes into detail with the contract and the actual deed. This is an example of another series, a separate series of, of registers of fee farm rents. Fee farm rents are rents paid to the Crown either by corporations or what would have been chief tenants of the Crown that originally got their land as a grant from the Crown, or, or boroughs or towns that had a, a grant of incorporation, a charter from the town, and they paid a lump sum to the Crown in lieu of the rents that the Crown lost by granting the land to the individual or to the corporation. Um, so there's a set of registers where corporate landowners and large estate owners that had their land originally granted by the Crown could actually redeem the land tax and there's a separate set of registers for those. So this is one where Sir Henry Dash 
Dashwood, who owned lots of property in Oxfordshire and other counties, is actually redeeming um, the land tax on a number of properties. And again, it goes into detail and lists all the names of the occupiers and the types of farms and property. So there's a separate set of redemptions of fee farm rents in IR24. And there's also some others under a Land Tax Act of 1812. Although they stopped having annual Land Tax Acts after 1798, they occasionally amended the various provisions of the Land Tax. So there are some later Land Tax Acts. And one of 1812 allowed under what was called Schedule C for small amounts of land for those landowners to redeem the land tax on those small amounts. So clause uh, or schedule C of that land tax act allowed for premises that didn't exceed a quarter of an acre to redeem, be redeemed by the payment of 18 years worth of tax. Now if you've only got a quarter of an acre you probably didn't have to pay very much any, anyway annually but you could pay 18 years worth in one lump sum and that would exonerate you. And this set of records. There are lots of entries for the City of London but also many other towns and boroughs where you've got landowners that have very tiny acreages or quarter less than a quarter of an acre in this case. So there's a separate set of returns under Schedule C in IR24. There's a series of land tax redemption registers which I mentioned at the beginning, IR8, and as I said they're not of particular use to family and local historians. Um, they run from 1863 to 1914. This is the first set of volumes. All they do is show you the parishes and year by year, and in this case it's not completely filled in, but there are later entries on the other side of the page, of the reducing amount of liability for land tax as more and more people um, pay off their liability by having uh, the tax redeemed. Um, so they're not of interest to, to family and local historians really, more to statisticians and, and tax historians. This is an example from one of the deeds and assignments in IR20, the enrolment books of deeds and assignments. So it's a copy of the deeds of sales of property where they could sell off property to raise the money to pay off the land tax on other properties. And this one just shows you an example of a plan that appears and sometimes appears in these deeds. This is of a house and tenement dwelling house in the North Street of Petworth in the tenure and occupation of James Ellis. And this land is actually being sold by the, um, I think it's the Bishop of Chichester who owns this particular property in Petworth. And it's actually being sold to the occupier. I mean, it could be sold to a third party and, and not involve the occupier, but I think in this particular case the occupier, James Ellis, was actually buying the property from the landowner. But you do find these little plans in these deeds from time to time. But if you find an entry in the quotas and assessments then it is always worth consulting the deeds in IR20 or IR24 depending on the type of contract that it is. There's also for the IR20s an, in, an index to the parties in, in the series of enrolment books of deeds and assignments. They're in pieces uh, IR 21 to 13 and IR 2014 is the index. And this is just the first page of the index, which is just arranged alphabetically. And you can find details of the deed and the contract number in there. Another example of, a, of registers in IR 21, sales of land. 
Um, this is an entry that appears and you get extracts from the board minutes. So this is an entry from the 25th of January 1816 showing the sale of land in North Allerton by the Bishop of Durham um, to uh, a chap called Henry Hurst, Esquire. And I think he is actually the tenant of the property. Um, it doesn't go into great detail, but it does tell you the actual board meeting is the 25th of January 1816, and there's only two people present, um, Lord Radstock and Nicholas Van Sittart, who's the Chancellor of the Exchequer. So he's actually one of the commissioners. And they're just approving the sale of this land in North Allerton that belongs to the Bishop of Durham to Henry Hurst, Esquire. But it's quite interesting in that it does say that Henry Hurst had a lease on the property from the 7th of November 1815. So he'd only recently renewed the lease. And it was a lease for three lives. It doesn't give you the details of the individual, unfortunately. It just says three lives, 36, I think it's 21 and 18 years of age. It's quite possible, though, that Henry Hurst may be the eldest of those people, the 36-year-old. But you can get here the date of the contract. Although it was approved at this board meeting in January, you do get the date of the sale. You get the number of the contract and the date of the sale, and then you can look that up. And then you get, it will go into more detail about the ownership of the property, the description of the property, and um, the individuals. After 1950, the details of the certificates, they just become pro formas, basically. And I've just put this up as an example of the final series of certificates after the 1949 Finance Act. And this is the example of the very last certificate that was issued in 1963. And it was issued to a lady called Nellie Mary Marshall of Osborne Farm, Borden, in Hampshire although rather quaintly it still refers to the county of Southampton. And she's just redeeming the extremely large sum of 12 shillings and 11 pence. Not on her farm in Borden, Osborne Farm in Borden, but, and I'm afraid I haven't got it on here, but it's actually property in, um, in Newton Longville in Newport Division of Buckinghamshire. So it's a property that she owned in a neighbouring county or in another county. And this is the very last certificate that was issued. It was issued on the 5th of December 1963 by R. Dew, who was the Assistant Registrar of Land Tax, not for much longer. So that's the very last certificate, and they managed the civil servants to make sure it was an even-numbered certificate. There are actually gaps in this register of unused certificates, which I've just left blank, so that you can just end historically on a, a nice round number. And this redeemed the tax back to the 25th of March 1963, which was when the tax was finally stopped. So there was just a few later certificates in the pipeline, and this is the very last one issued on the 5th of December 1963. And just to refer, I referred at the beginning to the land, local land tax assessments. This is just one example of a local land tax assessment from 1812. Most counties will have a good run of these land tax assessments from 1780 to 1832, from that 1780 Act which required the clerks of the peace to maintain the registers of voters for Knights of the Shire for the county um, franchise. 
they'll list again all the principal proprietors and landowners and the occupiers, but they vary from county to county and from parish to parish. Sometimes they'll be nice and neat, sometimes there'll be bits of scraps of paper, sometimes they'll be detailed and you'll get details of acreage, what should be collected and what was collected. Other times you'll just get a list of names and a list of figures of amounts collected. You won't even get a description of the property, you won't even get an acreage. Sometimes it won't be clear what the property is, whether it's a piece of land, whether it's a farm, whether it's a mill or anything. So they do vary um, in quality. They continue after 1832 in many cases, but where people did exonerate and pay off the land tax, they, they ceased to appear in the list of voters in the new registers of electors that came in after 1832. Um, and before 1780, Counties vary in the amount of returns that they've got. As I've said, Rutland is particularly exceptional in that it has returns from 1712, but many don't have them until much later or from 1780 onwards. You can look for land tax assessments with other sort of taxation records held outside the National Archives on access to archives and do a search of individuals. You need to do an advanced search and go into the records for a particular county record office. Um, as well as using access to archives, you can use the National Register of Archives to look for records of landowners and estate records. Um, the the, the proprietors, the landowners listed in the quotas and assessments in IR23 will give you some idea of the principal landowners in that parish and then you can look for estate and manorial records. Um, I haven't included the online page, the manorial documents register, because it only at the moment includes a few online records. The main manorial document register is on microfilm up in the map and large document room. But you can look for manorial records there. But you can get the names of landowners and principal landowners from the quotas and assessments in IR23 and then search in county record office catalogues and on the National Register of Archives catalogue by personal name, by parish and township to see if returns survive. Further reading I haven't really included very much and the only other thing I've mentioned is Tracing Your Ancestors in the National Archives where Amanda refers to the surviving land tax redemption office records, um, IR8 and IR20 to 25, um, but there is a good bibliography in here if you want to pursue um, information on the land tax, how it was administered and what survives. And there are references to various publications, both sort of academic and uh, less, less academic and, and more easily readable. Um, there's also um, articles in Ancestors magazine as well. Um, that's a general run through of what records survive for the Land Tax Redemption Office. The National Archives podcast series, The Land Tax, 1692 to 1963, presented by Mark Pearsall. This podcast is copyrighted to the National Archives. All rights reserved.